Well, go ahead and open your Bibles up to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're continuing our study through 1 Peter. Uh, by the way, that's going to carry us through the month of August. Well, hopefully, Lord willing, we're going to finish up 1 Peter 3 by the time August, or excuse me, 1 Peter by the time August is over. Um, and then we'll dive into some other things in the fall. I've got some plans about what I believe the Lord will have us to look at, and I'm looking forward to sharing with you that with you soon, uh, but not today. Ha ha. How's that for a cliffhanger? Not that any of you actually care. Um, that's okay. I, I know where I stand in life. That's all right. Um, as you're turning over to 1 Peter chapter 3, I was reminded this week of a story of, of a friend of mine. And as far as I know, this is a true story from several years ago. Um, this friend of mine was going to a new dentist. He'd recently moved back to the area and was going to a new dentist. And, you know, if you ever go to a new doctor or a new dentist, you've got to fill out all of the paperwork that's the family history of all of this and, what you know, this kind of thing. Well, he decided that he was in kind of a weird mood and wanted to have a little bit of fun with it. So when it came to the section about what implements do you use to clean your teeth, he was brutally honest and mentioned thumbtacks, paper clips, um, all the things that he typically would do. He was that kind of guy who would just be sitting there and feel something in his teeth and he'd grab whatever he had in his desk that might get there, okay? So he was brutally honest about that, but then it got to the section on allergies and he had no known allergies, but he didn't want to leave it blank. So he just went ahead and put, I'm allergic to pain. Um, now, I don't know about you. I hope that the dentist got a good laugh out of that, but I think that's probably a good way for us to think about life, isn't it? Most of us as Americans would probably put we're allergic to pain, right? We don't like pain. We don't like to suffer. My family went through that this week on an incredibly minor scale when we came in on Monday evening to find gallons of water pouring out of the bottom of our hot water heater. Now, this was one of the beautiful moments where it's great to be able to rent because then you can call the landlord and say, hey, landlord, your water heater is leaking. What are you going to do about it? That's what's wonderful about renting. So we were able to call him. It was in the basement, so no major issue. We were able to get it cleaned up, but we were without hot water for a couple of days. It was like little house on the prairie. We were having to boil water to do dishes. Um, now, some of you guys know I have a habit of, of periodically taking cold showers, and everybody's made fun of me for that. Well, here's why, all right? I was able to take showers for two days with no issues, whereas anybody that tried it in our home was sputtering. <laughs> because we hate pain, and the water's not even that cold around here. Y'all, come on. It's summer. It's not that bad, Right? See, there you go. We're like allergic to any kind of pain or discomfort. That's what's made 1 Peter so hard, isn't it? Because as we've been going through 1 Peter, we've been finding that, that what God's calling us to do is to lean into the pain. As we follow Jesus, we recognize that, that we're living with a different set of priorities than those who don't follow Jesus. We're living with a different standard. We're living with a different set of right and wrong. And we have to respond differently. And sometimes that's going to cause us to suffer for the cause of Christ. Now, again, in America, we've been incredibly blessed and incredibly fortunate that we can stand here and publicly proclaim Christ. This is being broadcast on the Internet. There's no question about, you know, nobody had to make, you know, kind of weird turns and, and try to hide where they were going this morning. You could freely come and worship. We can freely declare that Jesus is Lord without any fear of reprisals. And that's a blessing that God's given us here in the country in which we live. Everybody around the world doesn't have that, by the way. There's a lot of countries that can't have that freedom. However, as we're noticing, our culture is shifting further and further away from the standards that God's given us in his word. 
that's causing us to find ourselves facing a little bit more of societal uh, unrest, where, where folks get mad at you for believing some of the things that the Bible teaches. And exalting Jesus as the only way of salvation is cast as narrow-minded and, and things like that. How do we keep going and representing Christ when it starts to hurt like that? Some of you may have experienced this because you've followed Jesus when the rest of your family hasn't. You've made decisions to honor him and your family thinks you're crazy because you give money to the church or you go or you take vacation days to go serve somewhere. They don't understand it and it's caused discord and a disconnect with your family. Maybe at work, you're known as the guy who won't go there, the guy who won't laugh at that, the guy who won't, and you're the weird one, right? And you've been put on the outside of things. Maybe you've even missed promotions because you weren't willing to, to fudge on this report a little bit or, or to kind of, you know, kind of cover those numbers a little bit. And when we lean into that pain, here's what I want you to see. Leaning into pain to suffer for Christ is always worth it. It's always worth it. Now, as we go through that this morning, I, I, we're going to see that in kind of a real practical section. Peter's sort of transitioning us. Uh, we're getting closer to wrapping up the letter. Over the last several weeks, we've been seeing Peter telling us how we're supposed to relate to the authorities that God's put in life and over us. We started looking at the government authorities. We looked at the fact that even if we're enslaved people, that we're to honor God by obeying those that are in authority over us. Last week, we looked at what do we do within the home? How do we honor Christ as husbands and wives? And then now we're picking up in verse 8 and following. We're going to see how do we continue to honor Christ in these different situations. And as he goes through, there's kind of three different sections that we're looking at this morning. And in each of these, Peter is going to call us to obey Christ, to, to demonstrate him, to devote ourselves to good work, to defend the hope that we have. And with each of those, he's going to give us a reason why. A reason why leaning into the pain and demonstrating Christ or leaning into the pain and devoting ourselves to what's good and leaning into the pain and defending our hope leads to these things. So my hope and my prayer for you is that God will continue to encourage you to be able to stand firm in the faith and to continue doing what God's called us to do based off the hope that we've seen, okay? Now, as we're looking at it this morning, we're going to see this three groups of commands, like I said. Each one has this unique emphasis. Let's just dive right in. We'll cover them a bit at a time. The first thing that God calls us to here as we're leaning into the pain is, number one, demonstrate Christ because it brings blessing. Demonstrate Christ because it brings blessing. Start with me in 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult. But on the contrary, giving a blessing, since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. So here, Peter's telling us that we need to be able to do things that look like what Jesus does. We've seen over the last few weeks about how we live honorably among the Gentiles. We've seen that God calls us to submit, all of these things. But these attitudes and actions in verse 9 are ways that we're called to demonstrate Christ to both believers and, I believe, also to unbelievers. There's not a real clear distinction here, but we'll walk through these things that he calls us to, and we'll see that as we're doing this, we're, we're demonstrating who Jesus is and what he does, all right? The first characteristic that he gives us here in verse 8 is that all of us be like-minded and then sympathetic. First, starting with the idea of like-minded. This is talking about the way that we relate to other brothers and sisters in Christ. This does not mean that you and I will always think the same about every issue, okay? Like-mindedness does not mean that we're always thinking the same thing, that we can finish each other's 
sandwiches, right? No, I'm sorry. Some of you guys haven't seen Frozen, um, right? Okay. But if you've seen it, you got the joke. If not, it's okay. Don't worry about it. All right? We don't finish each other's sentences. We're not always on the same page. We're not thinking the same thing all the time. Rather, like-mindedness here is that we have the same goal in mind. Your goal and my goal in life should be to exalt Jesus as our Savior and Lord. That should be your goal and mine. So you and I may have different ideas about exactly what that looks like. We have different roles and different responsibilities in the kingdom of how that's going to play out. But your job and my job is to be able to make sure that Jesus is exalted in every corner of my life and then in every corner of the world. So that means that we maintain a like-minded purpose. We start thinking the same kind of ways about this purpose. Now, again, you and I may have differences about what kind of music we like or what kind of uh, uh, way we want the sanctuary to look or what you're supposed to wear to church, all these things. Sometimes we have differences about stuff like that. But what it all comes down to is we're unified in the idea that our goal is to make sure that Jesus is exalted in anything and everything we do. That's awesome because you know what else that does? That spreads out not only across us within the church here, but also with the other churches in the area. You know, there's other churches that believe slightly differently than we do on some issues that we can partner with because we love Jesus and they love Jesus and they're trying to exalt Jesus and we're trying to exalt Jesus and we can be like-minded together in that, right? We should be willing to partner even if there's things that we don't don't always agree with because, hey, guys, I don't always agree with my own self, right? I mean, don't you, do you have days where you don't even agree with you? If that's the case, then of course there's going to be churches that I don't always agree with everything. I'm not going to agree with you on everything. I'm not going to agree with everything that Grace Life does or that Blue Ridge does or that Good Shepherd does or that Harbor of Hope does. Or We're going to have differences. But those churches that are trying to exalt Jesus as Savior and Lord and see people come into a relationship with him and change the world through that, we can partner together even if we differ on stuff because we're maintaining like-mindedness. By the way, that's not just across denominational lines. That's also across racial lines. One of the things that you and I need to understand is that as a church, we need to make sure that we're looking across racial lines to make sure that our priority is that Jesus is exalted. Whether that's within white culture, whether that's Latin culture, whether that's black culture, wherever it is, we need to be willing to partner with other races, with other folks, with other individuals, other denominations, whoever seeks to exalt Jesus. We want to come alongside, we want to support, we work together to see God's kingdom expanded, right? We're demonstrating Christ by maintaining like-mindedness. Now, we're not always going to think the same. We're not always going to act the same. One of my favorite ways to see this is when you go on an international mission trip. Um, If you've ever had a privilege of serving Christ overseas with folks who are from a totally different cultural background than you are, what you find is there's this instant camaraderie because your goal is both the same, to exalt Jesus as Savior and Lord. That means whatever other differences we have, we're like-minded because our goal is to make sure Jesus is lifted up. And it creates this incredible friendship and brotherhood just from day one. It's awesome to see. We need to demonstrate Christ. That's through our like-mindedness, right? Even if we disagree on some of the other stuff, we're agreeing on the purpose of honoring Jesus. Next, he said our our unity is going to continue as we act with sympathy for each other, right? Be sympathetic. So like-minded, sympathetic. Be kind, right? I, I, don't, I don't want to say be nice because nice has gotten this connotation of, of this weak pushover kind of thing. But guys, you realize that you're not the only person going through stuff, right? Like, look around you. Other people are facing really difficult things. We have folks in our church family who are battling serious health issues. 
We have folks in our church family who are battling with family struggles. We have folks who are battling with financial issues. We have folks who are, are dealing with relational struggles that we can't even begin to fathom, all kinds of stuff. And yet they're seeking to exalt Christ. Can we be sympathetic towards that? Maybe somebody's going to snip at you one day at church. <gasps> Maybe they've had a really hard week. Maybe there's something going on. Maybe you need to put yourself in their shoes for a little bit. By the way, remember, anytime I point a finger at you, I got three pointing back at me, right? We need to be sympathetic. You know, as we talk about it, that also brings up maybe we need to be more sympathetic towards the situation that minorities around us face that we may not. I, I say that because I'm speaking to a predominantly white culture. I'm just going to just be honest, guys. Something I've been studying a lot and reading about right now. But maybe we do need to be more sympathetic to what's going on in the minority culture around us. Maybe we need to be looking out and thinking about what our brothers and sisters in Christ and the black community and the Latin community, the Asian community, maybe we need to be more sympathetic to what's going on there. Because we demonstrate Christ by showing that like-mindedness that comes through in our sympathy that we display towards each other. You'll notice that that's going to require us also to be compassionate and humble. So if sympathy is kind of the attitude, compassion is the action, right? Sympathy is to say, I am so genuinely hurt for you and with you by what you're experiencing. Compassion is, so I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to come alongside you to be able to help you however I can. I'm going to be coming along to, to demonstrate Christ because that's what Jesus has done for us. That compassion comes out of a heart of humility. Uh, we've, we've said it before, but humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. I was talking with the, the co-ed class last week, the young adult class that I had the privilege of teaching a couple weeks this, this month about what humility looks like. And it's hard to really pin down what humility is because when you start describing it, you're losing it, right? Like if somebody starts describing themselves as humble, they've probably lost their humility if they had it to begin with. When we look at what humility is, when you're talking to somebody who's genuinely humble, you don't really walk away from them saying, oh, man, they're so humble. You walk away from the conversation saying, wow, that person was so interested in me. I, you know, they didn't really talk about themselves hardly at all. They, but they asked how I was doing, and they seemed to genuinely care. And, and anything that they did say, they were really interested in trying to help me. They weren't just bragging. They weren't just trying to talk because they liked the sound of their own voice. Now, genuine humility is an intense care and concern for other people. So like-minded, sympathetic, compassionate, humble towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. That should be relatively easy, right? I mean, most of y'all are pretty easy to get along with most of the time. I mean, can we be honest, guys? Everybody has bad days. But it's fairly easy to love our brothers and sisters in Christ because we've got that common goal. Hey, I may not agree with you on this thing, but I know that you want to exalt Jesus and I want to exalt Jesus and we want him to be in charge of everything. So, so we may disagree about this, but I know that you love me and I love you, right? But what about when it's not like that? Go back to the passage. Like-minded and sympathetic, love one another. Be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult. Wait a second. 
I think we've shifted, haven't we? See, evil for evil, insult for insult, that's not something that should characterize us as the body of Christ. So all of a sudden, we've gone from these one another's of loving one another, then we got that compassionate and humble that actually bridge us to not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult. It's not just enough for us to demonstrate Christ towards people who we like, people we go to church with, other believers, but even to those who are lost, even to those who reject Christ, who insult us, who trade evil against us. We have to be compassionate and humble towards those who insult as well. Now, we can't be like-minded with those who don't know Jesus. We've got a different end goal because if our goal is to exalt Jesus as Savior and Lord over all of creation, that's a different goal than those who aren't following Jesus. So there's not going to be a like-mindedness. But there can be compassion. There can be humility. You see, when I sit here and I talk about folks who don't know Jesus, if I sit there and say, yeah, serves them right for them to be like that, then I'm missing out on the fact that were it not the grace of God, I would be lost. There's no reason I should be saved and they should be lost other than the grace of God. See, my family didn't start going to church until I was in fourth grade. I had godly grandparents, but my mom and dad had not been walking with the Lord for a number of years. In fact, mom wasn't even saved. What if we had moved somewhere where there weren't a whole lot of churches? What if my best friend, whose family went to a different church, wasn't regularly going to church to the point where I asked my mom and dad, hey, why does his family go to church and not ours? What if the Newcomb family hadn't been there the first Sunday that we came and invited my brother to come back to Sunday school the next week. See, had God not brought the gospel to me, had I not had Dave Cunningham as my Sunday school teacher, guys like Randy Marshall that were helping with RAs and Sunday school and all these things, Ed Busey was our deacon, Pete Duplessy was our pastor. Had these people not shared the gospel with me, I would be lost. So I ought to have some humility when I'm sharing the gospel. It's not because I deserved it. Not because I sought after God. It's because God sought after me. And in his grace, he saved me. So I'm called then to demonstrate Christ in not sending evil for evil or insult for insult. In fact, this is literally what Peter just said that Jesus did. If you've got your Bible, flip back over to chapter 2, verse 21. You were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he didn't insult in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. You're called to do exactly what Jesus did. If anybody ever had a right to defend themselves, it was Jesus. He did no sin. He had never sinned. There was no deceit in his mouth. He wasn't lying. And yet when he was insulted, when he was reviled, he willingly submitted himself to the Father and to those who were doing it so that he could die on the cross for my sins and yours. So what he's calling us to do is exactly what he's done. 
He's calling us to live in compassion and humility, yes, towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, and also to those who reject, who revile, who hate him. Now, it would be enough for him to just say it, and it'd be worth it, and that'd be it. But go back to what he says here. Back in verse, or chapter 3, verse 9, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing. All right, by the way, pause. Did you catch that? He's not just saying, I'm not going to get back at you. He says, but giving a blessing. That means it's not enough for me not just to insult you, but God's actually calling me to bless you and not say like, bless you because you sneezed. Like to actively work for your good, even when you're insulting me for following Jesus. Even when you're doing evil things against me, God calls me to give a blessing to you, to pray for you, to, to do what I can to help you, even as you revile. Great instance from this happened several weeks ago. When the Roe v. Wade decision was overturned there with Dobbs, pregnancy resource centers across the country knew that there was a, an increased likelihood that they were going to be attacked. There was one particular one up in the Pacific Northwest that shares a, the administrative offices for the, this resource center is in the same office building as a church that's there. They had tried to board up the windows that morning when they got, they would probably be released that day, but unfortunately they weren't able to get everything done in time. And sure enough, an angry mob came through that night, busted out windows, spray painted profanities and graffiti all over the building. This is in a very unreached area. A lot of people here don't follow Jesus. So the pastor of that church and the other pastors who live in the neighborhood there around the church facility were out consoling the neighbors who were upset over what was taking place. Instead of just sitting there saying, how dare they do this? They took the opportunity to say, yes, this hurts. This was wrong for them to do that. But we're worried about you because I know you're upset about seeing this violence in the neighborhood. And the Christians stepped in, not for their own good or defend themselves, but to be able to plead on behalf of their neighbors who were afraid and unsettled. That's giving a blessing, even when being insulted. That's giving a blessing, even when evil is being perpetrated against you. We demonstrate Christ. Jesus was insulted but didn't insult back. So leaning into pain means that I'm going to put my brothers and sisters in Christ ahead of my own wants and desires. It means blessing people who hate me, who insult me, and who sin against me. Why? Because God promises a blessing for those who... Guys, we have the idea of blessing all wrong, for the record. We think blessing means more money better health, happier family, healthy, wealthy, wise, better job. Some, those are blessings from God. That's, there's no question. Anything that God gives us is a blessing from him. However, suffering for Jesus may very well get you killed. I mean, there are Christians today who will die because they follow Jesus. What kind of blessing is that? It's the blessing we've seen all through 1 Peter. He's talked over and over again about the fact that there's an inheritance waiting in heaven for us, that God has reserved this blessing that's there in heaven waiting for us to get there. Whether he comes back and gives it to us first or whether we die and go see him, there's a blessing waiting for those who are willing to demonstrate Christ and lean into the pain. 
So that's why it's worth it is because he promises that he'll bring a blessing. But beyond that, he goes on to say that we're to devote ourselves to doing good things because it brings God's attention. Look at verses 10 through 13. For the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the right and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. Like Peter's done throughout the letter, he looks back to what God taught the Israelites in the Old Testament and applies it to those who follow Christ now. He's quoting from Psalm 34 to remind us that honoring Christ is the way to live the most fulfilling life we can find. Now, some commentators that I read coupled this with the blessing that's coming, uh, that, that we'll receive when we get to heaven, but I don't necessarily think that's the best application of this. Truthfully, when I read it, what I see is that God promises that if you want to love life and see good days, that you're to devote yourself to doing good. That's what it says in verse 13, which we did that. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? If you're devoted to what is good, that's the key to living a good life. It's not the key to living an easy life. It's not even the key to always living a happy life. But here's what I know. Let's assume the worst. Whatever political scenario you want to run in your mind, um, let's go ahead, let's, let's run out the Chinese. Let's go with that. Let's say the Chinese take over America and put us under communist rule. And I am no longer free to stand up and publicly proclaim Christ. Knowing that, there's a high likelihood that I as a pastor would get thrown in prison. Okay? That's not exactly what I would have sat down and given you as my 10-year plan for a good life right? However, worst case scenario, if those things were to take place, it's the best life I could imagine. You know why? Because I know at the end of the day, I'm right with God. No matter what anybody else does to me, no matter what else we go through, no matter how much your family makes fun of you, your boss makes fun of you, or your coworkers are against you, no matter any of those things, at the end of the day, when you lay your head on your pillow, as you're de demonstrating Christ and devoting yourself to what's good, you know that you are right with God because of what Jesus has done. And nothing can shake that. That's why when peace like a river attends your way or when sorrows like sea billows roll, you can say, it is well with my soul. And that changes everything. That gives you the freedom to live for Christ in the midst of even when it's hard. Because you have that constant knowledge that because of what Christ has done, you're right with God. Remember, him drawing you into his kingdom was not based on your ability to do the right thing. It wasn't because you were smart or because you're beautiful or handsome or because you're a real asset to the team. Or It was simply because he loved you. Like, you realize that if you're saved today, if, if you're in a relationship with God, it's not because you were so good that you earned it or because God knew you would make this great contribution. It's because he loved you. It's the same way that a, a parent loves their child. You know, if a good godly parent loves their child correctly, that child doesn't have to be the best one in school, the fastest one on the team. The, that's my kid, and I love them. Even more so, the God of the universe looks at those that he's drawn to himself and his kingdom and say, I love you. Nothing can take that away. So he calls us then to devote ourselves to what's good. Now, 
I think there's a difference between just doing good and devoting yourself to doing good. Look at the words that he uses here. As you look back through verse 10 through 12, you see, let him keep his tongue from evil. Let him turn away from evil. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Him devoted to what's good. That has the idea of an ongoing commitment, right? This is not just one time or when it's easy, but this devotion to doing what's good. Um, let's see. How many of you are fans of, let's see, what's the Washington football team's new name? The Commanders, Commandants, Admirals, whatever, whatever the terrible name they came up with. He should, the team formerly known as the Redskins, okay? Anybody fans of the team formerly known? All right, we've got a couple of them. How long has it been since the Redskins won anything significant? A long time. <laughs> However, if you ever meet a devoted fan of the fan, team formerly known as the Redskins, they still wear the merchandise. They can still tell you who's quarterback. They can still tell you about the starting lineup. They still know how many games they won, lost. They are devoted to that team come Win or lose, right? Yeah, I was going to say, there's plenty of other teams we could have mentioned. I just went with that one, all right? So here, God calls us to devote ourselves to doing good. Win or lose. You can't just be a bandwagon whether Tom Brady fan, right? You can't just jump on the bandwagon because they're winning. Devoting yourself to what's good says, I'm in this for the long haul. I'm in this for the good days. I'm in this for the bad days. I'm going to, to seek to keep my tongue from evil. What's that mean? Watch your words, guys. James talks about how bad it, our tongue can destroy, and it's the truth. The whole sticks and stones can never hurt me, but, or sticks and, yeah, sticks and stones really can't hurt you. Words can, <laughs> right? Words can absolutely hurt. I bet if I asked, we've got folks in here in their 70s, folks in their 80s, and I bet you could tell me a teacher who was in like sixth grade who told you something about how you're never going to amount to anything, you're never going to be good at math or whatever, and you still remember that to this day. As we're demonstrating Christ, devoting ourselves to what good, what is good means we devote ourselves to our words. Not only that, he says that we're to turn away from evil and do what's good. Again, you've got this both and. I'm turning from evil and I'm turning to doing what's good, right? Then you go on to see where he says, let him seek peace and pursue it. Pursuing is an active thing. I'll give you another example. We've got a puppy that is nine months old, maybe, almost nine months old, okay, he got out the other day. The gentleman who owns the uh, lot behind us was mowing, and Charlie wanted to go investigate the lawnmower. As a cocker spaniel, he is quick. As an almost 40-year-old man, I am not. Pursuing that dumb dog all around the house, he's got great awareness, by the way. He knows exactly how far you can reach. Because you can get a hand on him as he cuts and goes the other direction, but you're not going to get it. Finally, took our, he got distracted enough barking at the neighbor that I was able to finally get him. It was a hot pursuit. In that moment, I was having to tap into all of my reserves. I was breathing hard. I was running hard after the dog. Okay? Now that you've got that mental picture in your head, pursue peace. Pursue peace with other people. Pursue peace in our world. Pursue it. 
You see this? This is not just a, I, yeah, I, I throw a little bit in the offering. I, yeah, I do the online giving thing. Or, yeah, I go to church for like an hour on Sundays. Devoting yourself to what's good is a comprehensive life commitment. Why would we do that? Because it gets God's attention. It gets God's attention. Now, real quick, we know that God knows everything. There is nothing right now that is escaping the eye of God, okay? He knows exactly how many hairs are on exactly how many heads are in this room, okay? He knows where all 8 billion people are on the planet. He knows exactly what they're doing. He knows exactly what's going on in their heart. His knowledge is unsearchable. But at the same time, here's what the Scripture teaches us. Look at verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the faith of the face of the Lord is against those who do what's evil. That means in a unique way, God pays attention to and favors those who are devoted to doing good. Now stop for just a second. Have you guys been watching the pictures that are coming out of the James Webb Deep Space Telescope thing? They're finding galaxies that no human being has ever seen, looking deeper and deeper into the far reaches of the universe. Uh, you can argue about whether it was wise for us to spend that much money to do it. I think it's super cool, all right? I am a total space nerd when it comes to this kind of stuff. I love it. So the God who flung those galaxies out where he knew we would never see them for thousands of years until we finally got a telescope that was strong enough to be able to see these things, the God who calls all of the stars by name, stops and pays attention to those who devote themselves to doing good. And his ears are open to their prayer. Why would God do that? Because he's so good. Because he's so, so good. So what's my responsibility? Well, then as, as one who's a part of his family because of what Jesus has done, I want to devote myself to doing good. I want to seek peace and I want to pursue it. I want to make, make sure that I'm guarding my lips and my words and, and, and making sure that I'm not saying dumb things or, or deceiving people with what I say. I want to honor Christ because that's, that's his paying attention to me. Now again, we know God's omniscient. He knows everything. But in a unique way, he pays attention to and responds to the prayers and actions of his people. That's what it says. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what's evil. Which would you rather have? God's eyes on you? His ears open to listen? I don't know about y'all, but I'm bad about it. If I'm, if I'm scrolling, you know, just sitting there going through Instagram or whatever, I can't hear anything going on around me. To think that God's ears are open. He never gets distracted, but he's listening. You know, leaning into the pain, devoting yourself to what's good, it can hurt. But it brings the attention of God. So then, who's going to harm you? Who, who can harm you if you're doing good? 
Now, verse 13 does not mean, yeah, see, read it again. Who then will harm you if you're devoted to what's good? That does not mean that everything in your life is going to be fine. We've made that clear throughout this passage. However, it's similar to what Jesus told the crowd there in Luke. Luke chapter 12, verse 4 and 5 said, I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more, but I'll show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. See, it's not that people can't hurt you. It's not that people can't harm you. It's that ultimately, if people do the absolute worst that people can do, they cannot destroy your soul. They cannot separate you from God. They can't disrupt what God's doing in eternity in you and through you. Nobody can stop that. So don't be afraid of them. Now, third and final thing, defend your hope because Jesus is Lord. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? That's so counterintuitive. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you're accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now let's make a few quick observations about this. We've seen that we're blessed even when we're suffering for Christ. The fact that we're blessed, though, does not give us an excuse to retreat and hide and wait for Jesus to come back and God to judge those who oppose him. Instead, we're called to be living in such a way that we can defend the hope that we've been given. That's a really scary step for most of us. I mean, let's be honest. Most of us would rather talk about anything in the world than talk about Jesus. Now, we'll talk about Jesus to our church friends, but to somebody that we know at work who's a, a practicing homosexual, somebody we know at work who's an atheist who told that joke last week about how stupid Christians are, I don't, I don't really want to bring Jesus up there. What if they make fun of me? What if they ask me a question that I can't answer? Well, let's talk about that for a second. We can't allow ourselves to be intimidated by these challenges. Instead, we need to, as he says, regard Christ the Lord as holy. That means at our core, we have to recognize that Jesus is the one in charge of everything. He's the king, he's the ruler, he is Lord. Well, what's that word holy mean? We've talked about it. The word holy means set apart. So what this means is Jesus gets a different category in our heart than anything else. That doesn't mean we're setting him aside. It means we're setting him on top above everything else. We're setting apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, meaning Jesus is more important to me than my reputation, than me looking smart, than people liking me. Jesus is Lord. He's more important than any of that. So that means I have to be ready to defend the hope that I have. Now, this part is what scares a lot of folks. That what, what do I do if there's a question that I can't answer? I'm teach you a really, really important phrase for you to be able to use. I don't know. I'll get back to you. Okay? That's all you got to say. I don't know. I'll get back to you. Now, here's the hard part about that. You have to get back to him. Okay? 
But what that means is you're going to have another opportunity to talk to them about Jesus because you can say, hey, hey, you remember you asked me that question the other day and I didn't have a good answer for you? Well, I went and I asked my pastor, or I went and asked my Sunday school teacher or, or some friends of mine at church. I, um, I would say I looked it up online. Be cautious with that. If it seems weird, it probably is, okay? Um, the internet's a wonderful thing because you can find all kinds of answers for stuff. The, the problem with the internet is you can find all kinds of answers for stuff. So what we need to be doing, though, is learning how to defend the faith. Now, there's a whole field called apologetics, which is the study of how to make these philosophical and evidential-based uh, uh, answers to a lot of these questions. There is tremendous value in learning some of those things. I'm never going to downplay the value of, of apologetics. Um, God uses that to help break down barriers and things like that. But I'm going to go ahead and say that most of us are probably not in a place where we're really going to just dig deep into apologetics. You're not going to know how many manuscripts there are of the New Testament and how close they are to writing and why that gives us a good idea of the veracity of the canon of Scripture. And You need to look at those things. You need to study those things. They're great. But what you need to learn is how to defend the hope that's within you. Now, let me point you to one resource, by the way, if you're wanting to get into, into a little bit of the apologetics kind of stuff, or even if you're not, this is a great resource to have. It's a book called Questioning Evangelism by a guy named Randy Newman. Uh, we'll talk more in the fall a little bit about evangelism and how to share the gospel and things like that, but just giving you some tips right now. Randy Newman makes a great point. When you look through the gospels, when you look at Jesus sharing the gospel with lost people, he didn't say nearly as much as you think he did. He asked questions. And then he would say, he started often by answering the question with a question. So using that as an example and using some of the things that Solomon teaches in Proverbs and places, Randy Newman outlines a philosophy for us of, of instead of me sitting there saying, you know, here's all the reasons why we know that a good God can allow bad things to happen and still be sovereignly good. And there's, there's a time to make the, the argument about theodicy. There's a time for that. But when somebody says, I just don't understand why God would let bad things happen to, to innocent people like that. Why not respond with just wondering what, what makes you ask that question? Out of all the questions you could have asked, why that one? And what you'll hear is about how they were abused as a child or how their mother died of cancer in a long, painful battle or their best friend committed suicide. And then you realize the question is not really about why does a good God let bad things happen? It's why am I in pain? And in that moment, you can sit there and say, I am so sorry to hear that that happened to you. And I don't have all the answers of why God would let that happen. But then here's what I know God did for me. I know that God loved me so much that he would die on the cross for me. And he would take my sin. And he would die in my place. And he rose from the dead so that I could have new life. And, and I don't understand all the stuff about why he lets these things happen, but Man, how do, you, how do you handle the weight of that? How do you process that? Lean into those questions. Draw out the opportunity to be able to meet their pain with the gospel. This book goes through several of those key questions and ways that we can respond to it. Again, it's, not, it's a real easy one to read. It's not real um, academic and stuff like that. Some of the questions he, he answers are or helps us think through is, why are Christians so intolerant? Uh, why does a good God allow evil and suffering, such as terrorist attacks and AIDS? Um, why should anyone worship a God who allowed September 11th? Why would we, should we believe an ancient book written by dead Jewish men? Why are Christians so homophobic? What's so good about marriage? If Jesus is so great, why are some of his followers such jerks? <laughs> That's a great question. But I encourage you to, to pick this up. 
and to kind of read through it and start familiarizing yourself with it. If you need us to order, I, I wanted to order a bunch of copies, but they wouldn't come in in time because I didn't think about this one until Thursday. <laughs> um, but if, if so, I may order us a stack of them, and if you're interested, I'll get, you, get one to you. Um, great resource on how to defend your hope. But defending your hope doesn't have to be this massive apologetics lecture. Defending your hope is saying, I'm so sorry that you're in pain. I'm so sorry you're frustrated by this. But here's what I know. God loved me so much that he met me in my pain, and he saved me from it. And he can save you too. Don't be intimidated by it. Now, as you do this, if your goal is to go into the conversation with your lost friend and own them and just absolutely destroy their argument, you're going into it wrong. Peter says, as we defend our hope, we do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you're accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. Gentleness and reverence. That's not weakness. That's not hedging the truth. That's not backing down from it. But at the same time, it's defending our hope without getting defensive. And you know the difference. Defensive is when you feel the hair on the back of your neck stand up. And you're ready, you know, old school pugilist pose, right? Let's do this thing. Defend your hope without getting defensive. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. He's more important than your reputation. He's more important than your job. He's more important than your health. He's more important than everybody getting together on Easter without being mad at each other. Lean into the pain. Sean, I just can't. I'm allergic to pain. You know, we all are. And you're right, you can't. Neither can I. I can't always demonstrate Christ. I can't devote myself to being good, and I can't defend my hope. Even after all the time in seminary and being a pastor and all those things, there's still questions I can't answer. That's why I'm so glad that we have Jesus. Because see, as he's calling us to do all these things, and yes, bringing blessing and having his attention, and, and he is Lord, he's also the one who supplies us with the strength to lean into the pain. In fact, as we saw, he's the one who went into the pain ahead of us. So now his spirit can allow, can work in me to demonstrate him, to help me to be devoted to what's good, to show me when I get off track, and he can help me to defend the faith, defend the hope and to point people to Jesus as Lord. It's not about you doing it. It's about you stepping back and saying, Jesus, I need you to do this through me. Now we study, we pray, we prepare, we, we seek his face, but we do it all in his strength. Bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning. I know we've covered a lot of ground today. Is there anything in this that stood out to you personally? somewhere where you've not been demonstrating Christ to your brothers and sisters at church or outside of the people around you. Maybe you've been giving up on people instead of pursuing peace. Maybe you've been letting your mouth get away with you and you've been speaking things that are hurtful and evil, maybe even untrue. Perhaps you know that there's somebody you want to talk to about Jesus, but you've been scared because you don't know how to defend your hope. Maybe there's something that God wants you to do for that. What's the one next step you need to take this week to lean into the pain, to rest in his power, 
and to set apart Jesus as Lord. I want you to take just a minute where you're seated, do business with God, and set down that one thing that I'm going to commit in the strength that Christ supplies this week to do this. If you need to talk with me about anything, about following Jesus or anything like that, I'll be down front. would love to talk with you. If not, do business with God, and I'll close this in prayer in just a minute. Father, following you is not easy. But we thank you that you've made it clear from your word that it's worth it. Would you help us to demonstrate Christ in every relationship we have, both with Christians and non-Christians, folks in our church family, folks outside, folks of our own racial background, folks across racial lines, Would you speak to our hearts and allow us to demonstrate Christ well? Would you help us to be devoted to what's good? Not just to kind of casually coast through life, but to lean into doing what you've told us to do, the right thing at the right time in the right way for your glory, knowing that you pay attention, you hear, you see. And then as we have opportunities, would you help us to dive in and take the opportunities to defend the hope that you've put in us? Whether that's as simple as sharing our story or whether that's going through a a more thought out and more detailed defense of the faith, we know we can't change anybody's heart on our own. As we defend the hope that you've placed in us, would you use that to draw people to yourself? We can't convince people, we can't change them, but you can. So would you, through your spirit, work in us. Help us to lean into the pain, knowing that you've already gone ahead of us into it. Knowing that you're right here with us in it and you're waiting at the end of it to reward. Thank you for being a God who's all around everything that we do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.